Ashley at the Movies. I am Matt. And I'm Ashley. And we are joined today by Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hello. So nice of you to have me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This is Sarah's inaugural uh, visit on our show. And uh, Sarah's joining us for 13 Days of Halloween, which is the uh, annual sojourn into (laughs) horror thriller genre where every day leading up to Halloween, we talk about a a film and and it it falls under that spectrum. And today's movie is a Hammer film. And Ashley, uh, you're a big Hammer horror fan. um, And then this is a film that Sarah uh, likes and tweeted about. And so we decided to make it this year's Hammer inclusion. Um, So... Uh, it's called The Devil Rides Out. Uh, she's going to tell us about it. Sure. So this was released in 1968 and was directed by Terrence Fisher, who's a longtime Hammer director. Um, it's set in England in the 1920s or 30s. I wasn't sure exactly what, what time period, but um, it's definitely a period piece. Um, and Christopher Lee stars. He plays the Duke de Riccolo. Uh, he's. We don't really know a lot about him, I don't think, but he's he's very well versed in matters of the occult and dark arts, and he discovers um, that a good friend of his, Simon, has been drawn into a satanic cult, and that cult is led by a, a man named Mokada, who's played by Charles Gray, and the Duke and another friend um, named Rex, they make it their mission to rescue Simon from this cult. And they discover that there is a young woman named Tanith who is also kind of being inducted into the cult, so they try to save her as well. So that's kind of the setup for this movie. Um, Sarah, what did you think about it? You know, I first saw this movie when I was eight years old. Um, I got a ratty VHS from the library and shared (laughs) it with my mother, who was a giant Christopher Lee fan. And I honestly think um, now, after all these years later, after seeing so many Hammer horror films, this might be my favorite Hammer horror film of all time. And I'm so bummed that it never got a series like sort of the Draculas did or the Frankensteins did, because I would have loved to have watched Christopher Lee continue to play the Duke de Richelieu (laughs) going forward. I think that would have been just amazing. Yeah, it's it's a... One of the more rare uh, heroic roles that he did. Right. You know, yeah. He's usually known for kind of maybe playing the more villainous folks. But uh, yeah. So what is it that you like about this? What kind of stands out to you about it? Well, I mean, it's just so much fun. It tackles this um, idea of the occult in a fun and fresh and really insidious way. Um, it's a wonderful adaptation of Dennis Wheatley's novel by Richard Matheson. Um, and... It's, it's always just a great joy to watch Lee just um, take every line of dialogue and make a giant buffet out of it. <laughs> you can tell that he is just enjoying playing the hero so much, but not only playing the hero, but playing the smartest guy in the room who is so smart, he's aware enough to actually be afraid, where everybody else, for the most part, until you get to the climax is like, "Eh, how scary can all of this be? But (laughs) right from the beginning, this guy is like, oh no, this is terrifying. You are all in danger. (laughs) And um, and he's right. And it's just the way that it uses the spectacular sets and production design and then, you know, inserts all of these fun and, and different visual tricks for the special effects because obviously it's 1968 and Hammer 
has only so much budget, which I mean, we can get into. They actually ran out of budget at the end of the movie. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, but they, but Terrence Fisher manages to create all of these really spectacular visual moments, even though he doesn't have a lot of money to work with. And there's just images and moments in here that have stuck in my head since I was an eight year old kid that have never left. Yeah. <clears throat> well, this is my first time seeing it in preparation for the podcast, but I can imagine, I could only imagine uh, <laughs> what this impression this would have made on me if I'd seen it at eight, you know, or that, that age range. Cause there's some, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, this is one of the later hammer films, at least, you know, part of their, their kind of golden era. And it's different. It, it hits different than the earlier ones. I mean, Ashley and I, um, you know, earlier this month, we went and saw um, a Hammer film at a local theater. And, you know, it was The Curse of Frankenstein, which actually we talked about on the podcast four years ago. And that's 1957. Also Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing. But it's basically Frankenstein, the story. And oh, so know, good. It is. It is. But, you know, that's one of those um, kind of fantasy horror stories that we're mm-hmm. so used to. You know, the thing with The Devil Rides Out is, I mean, there are, in real life, there are devil worshippers, you know? <laughs> and uh, while this movie adds sort of the supernatural element thing, I mean, what makes this movie hit different for me is, I mean, like they're, they're, these these villains really do, you know, they're really out there. Um, so um, that's, that's a little different than just, oh, Frankenstein or, or Dracula or the mummy. Uh, not that those aren't great <clears throat> monsters. But yeah, and then... There is there is the element here where they do bring in you know demons or whatever they're, they're, they're called and that's used to good effect. And of course, you know Terrence Fisher, Sarah mentioned earlier, just the director, and you know uh, he's a stalwart Hammer horror director. Right? He directed the Curse of Frankenstein that is mentioned and mm-hmm. many many others. Um, so yeah, I think this is a uh, I think one of the better, if not one of the best uh, Hammer films. Yeah, I agree. And I, one thing I always love about them is the, the visuals and the sets. And this, I think this movie really excels. I really loved the, the settings. It seems we seem to move from kind of house to house, country house to country house in, in and around London. And they're just so, um, warm, but also, um, there's, you know, they're kind of scary. They're just, it's an excellent setting for this type of story. Well, and it's great because I mean, if you think about it, this film takes place just after World War One, and so we're still a couple—not quite a couple, but like a decade and a half out from World War Two. And so it's that period of British history where they are sort of full of themselves and thinking that you know the world is going to be at peace, but then there's this unsettling um, and mysterious. Uh, evil we'll just stick with evil because it works in the case of this film sort of lurking somewhere in the future that they can't quite figure out and this film being you know being made in 1968 it's really able to tap into that because fisher and everybody involved they knew what it felt like to come out of world war one but they also knew what it felt like in britain at that time to still be unsettled at the doorstep of world war ii and you can kind of feel that in the film um, especially if you watch it on, if you watch it again and, and you start like seeing little things here and there that kind of play into that. That's a really good observation. I hadn't even thought about that, but yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, 
One thing I just wanted to bring up too, and this is to me a plus, but uh, so I'm a fan of the old um, Avengers TV series that was from the, <laughs> yes. the 1960s, Patrick McNee. And, um, this watching this, which was made in the same time period as the Avengers was made, like I was thinking, like this could almost be an Avengers episode, like because <laughs> Patrick McNee rode a vintage car that, while you yeah. know, was this period accurate for this movie. You know, was not quite in 1960, but he wrote one of those. And so, and he drove around the countryside, and and Christopher <laughs> Lee was in Avengers episodes, and yeah. So I was watching this like, wow, this and and oh, Simon's has an observatory in his house. That set, I mean, yeah. I'm not gonna, you know, back right? this 100, percent but it reminded me of the set from the Avengers episode from Venus with Love, and, <laughs> and I was like, wow, I wonder if they use that uh, for this movie. Anyway, no, um, that's that's. That's yeah. So, so I wanted to ask you something, Sarah, about, um, and, and I want to see if you, what you think about this. Uh, maybe this is just a me thing. The, my only big issue I had with this that didn't quite make it sore for me is the, the fact that, you know, I didn't really care a lot about the two main people they were trying to save. <laughs> um, I guess Tanith and, and Simon. I mean, I didn't really know much about them. They weren't particularly charismatic. Uh, and I guess it's not that I wanted them to like, you know, suffer a terrible fate or anything, <laughs> but it's also like, I, I just didn't know who they were very well and, and they weren't terribly dynamic. And, but boy, the whole movie revolves around trying to save them and just them. I mean, everyone else that's <laughs> in the devil worshiping cult, they're like, okay, well, whatever. They're, they're already lost souls. And, and then they're, they're trying to save these two people. I don't know. Did you, does that, well, do you see that at all? Or? So, I mean, your latter point, they do explain that. It's a case of, you know, Tanith and Simon haven't, they have not completed the ritual. They have not given mm. themselves over to Satan yet. Yeah. And so they are the only two that can be saved. Mm. Um, everybody else has completed their ritual and they have given their soul. So, they are unfortunately no longer able to be saved. And, you know, Wheatley, you know, this, he's a very moral writer of that time and rightly or wrongly. I mean, it's like, this is what he believes and this is what he's going for. So you're going to, you know, if you've given your soul to Satan, sorry, you're screwed. If you haven't, Hey, you can still be saved. <laughs> um, but you don't have to remember, I mean, there is the child that also needs to be saved by the end of the film, and that's a completely different thing that we don't want to spoil for anybody because it's so weird and bizarre and kind of Rod Serling, Twilight Zone-ish. Um, but it's also very cool. Uh, but it's also an example of, hey, we ran out of money, and we have to figure out how to end this thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, Simon I get, but I can go with it only because um, when you look at um, w- when you look at Christopher Lee in the film, and um, you look, you look at uh, Leon Green, who plays, you know, the the, uh, the gruff, um, uber masculine Rex Van Ryan. <laughs> we under their friendship, even though it's in um, shorthand, we believe it. We're there with it. And when they say that they that that Simon is part of that friend group, and for the reasons that he's part of it, I buy it because those two performances are so good and they make me believe their friendship, then obviously Simon is worth saving for them. If, you know, um, the Duke and Ryan's um, friendship is that strong, Simon deserves to be in there. I do disagree with you a little bit with Tanith. I think what uh, Nikki Aragi is doing in the film is quite incredible. I mean, she has to underplay this to a really nth degree. 
Um, and she is forced to be sort of like this um, vessel for Mokata for the majority of the film where it, her soul is literally being ripped in two because he's battling for her and yet the Duke Richelieu is trying to bring her back. Plus she's falling in love with Rex. Um, and so she is really in this place where her entire psyche is at war with itself. And she easily could have just gone histrionic and over the top. And instead, for the most part, she really underplays it so that when she does have her few moments where she kind of just emotionally lets loose, like after she almost kills Rex at one point, no spoiler there. It's your, you know, it's this kind of movie where people almost get killed multiple <laughs> times. Um, you know, I believe that she, her, she is so torn up by what she almost does that it's just really cool to see to me. Um, so I kind of disagree with you on her because I really do love her performance and, and just the understated complexity of it. Yeah, I thought the performances were pretty great all around. I, we should make special mention, I think, of uh, Charles Gray. Uh, yes. plays Mikata. I, th- I thought he was a wonderful villain. I'm afraid I really only know him from Rocky Horror Picture Show, where he plays the criminologist. Um, so it was good to see him in, in this film. Um, I didn't realize he had such arresting eyes, but he does have yeah. very good eyes for a villain. Um, but yeah, I thought, you know, performances every, all around were good. And I think it's probably my favorite Christopher Lee performance that I've seen. Yeah, and speaking of performances, um, we should mention that the gentleman who played uh, Simon, uh, Patrick Moore, was like kind of a last minute replacement. Um, it was supposed to be Roddy mm-hmm. McDowell. Oh, really? Okay. And then Roddy McDowell backed out. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I have no issues with his performance. I, I just was, most of the movie, I was like, I guess I'm supposed to care about him because Christopher Lee cares about him. And so, okay. well, I feel like, unlike a lot of Hammer films, which we usually describe as deliberately paced, mm-hmm. this one starts right off really quick, yes. gets down to business. You're right in the heart of the plot right away. Um, so there's really not, uh, there's really not a lot of time to kind of build a groundwork for his character and make it maybe make you feel, um, more for him, mm-hmm. but um, I don't know. He's almost just kind of a plot device. He's kind of the MacGuffin that, that we're after. Yeah, totally. And it's <laughs> it's easy to see why Roddy McDowell would maybe, even though he would be working with people like Christopher Lee, it's it, it's easy to see why he maybe would have second thoughts and drop out of the film. Because I mean, Simon is he is. I think the MacGuffin is a great way to to describe his character. He is the red herring. He is sort of the thing that draws us in, but he's not really important as far as the grand scheme is concerned. The grand scheme is the Duke of Richelieu versus Mokada. Mm-hmm. Well, so I want to bring up one more thing about what kind of stood out to me is not a negative, but just a mm-hmm. something. And I know, I get, I know Sarah seems to know a lot about behind the scenes <laughs> things. So I'm going to, I'm going to bring this around to you, Sarah, but, <laughs> So this movie is about 95 minutes, 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. And while I can't say I divide it evenly like this, I feel like the first third is like, you just talked about Ashley. I mean, we hit the ground running in this movie and the first third is just got momentum. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the last, the back third has got things. I mean, it's a big, I mean, it's a almost a never ending climax of things <laughs> happening. And it's like, wow, <laughs> the middle come in comparison sags a little bit. I'm not saying the middle is bad, but compared to the, the, the first part and the last part, the middle just sort of, uh, and, and particularly, I think my, one of my reasons for thinking that is it, I don't know what happened. I don't know if they couldn't afford Christopher Lee, but like, <laughs> to, me, to me, this is a movie where, you know, there's some movies, okay, where the star of it is in almost every scene. Mm-hmm. I, we were just watching a review of PB's Big Adventure and I hadn't even thought about it before now, but they mentioned how he's pretty much in like every scene. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. And that's there's other movies like that. And to me, this is a movie where you need Christopher Lee in every scene. <laughs> and in the middle, particularly, he just I, he, his character goes away, and he basically leaves his assistant, what I who I who I uh, gave the nickname to of Doctor Watson because he was sort of a, <laughs> a Nigel Bruce style bumbling Doctor Watson who. Um, didn't seem too smart, but um, he kind of left him in charge and uh, things kind of go south. And I'm like, where's Christopher Lee? Where, where's he at? And I, and I thought to myself, maybe they couldn't afford him. I don't know. So I don't know, if Sarah, if you know anything about Because you said they ran out of money. I didn't know whether there's anything going on with, with the budget. Uh, no, I, no, I would say not with the cast. I mean, once the cast on a Hammer film was there, they're there. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, a, little, a lot of the midsection is pure exposition. I mean, other than sort of the battle at the against, you know, Baphomet at the at the uh, um, at the midnight ritual um, where they initially save Simon and Tanith. Um, between that and then sort of the actual climax, um, you do get a lot of the exposition as to who Mokata is, what he wants and why these characters, especially Tanith, are important to him. Um, and, you know, for the Duke, this is where he gets to do some of his research to be able to to do this battle. Now, I mean, you easily could have just done, oh, let's go watch, you know, Christopher Lee in a museum. But I think this is the moment where we needed to at least get some semblance of who these other characters are, mm-hmm. which means that you actually do get that great scene um, between Charles Gray and, uh, 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 oh, um, Sarah Lawson, sorry. Sarah Lawson is Mary Eaton, the, the mother of the young child, the, the friends that they go stay with to sort of avoid Makata. You get that wonderful scene between Charles Gray and Sarah Lawson where they get to, where he's slowly starting to hypnotize her and she's trying to sort of psychologically battle him and, and just, it's so great watching the two of them work together. And Charles Gray is just so insidiously creepy during that moment. Um, so, I mean, you have to take the focus off of Lee just a little bit so that, you know, you can give your villain this moment to take a, 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 you know, a fiery woman that we have just been introduced to and sort of, you can see how powerful he is by, by starting to whittle her down. And, um, what a great scene. And, so, I mean, I would kind of just push back a little bit on that only because I think it does help the film during the climax and it gives you these great little character moments that make the villain even better. Well, that's a good point. I had, I actually, that scene between her, uh, Sarah Lawson and, and Charles Gray totally slipped my mind. But yeah, that's a good scene. That's a good scene. Yeah, I agree. There's there's lots of great moments. Uh, there's a, uh extended period where our characters are in this circle of protection. And <laughs> I really, I really loved that, and you know, there's, there's a lot of and things. There's where, of, and there's where the the lack of money actually yeah, is. You know, that's, the, that's where the budget kind of fell apart. Yeah, the, the special effects are not great, uh, but you know, you kind of go into these movies. That's kind of an expectation going into these movies. You know, certainly they're dated. Um, here, they're mm-hmm. they're not even maybe great for 1968, but um, it's it does what it needs to do. Which that scene made me feel suspense. It made me feel tense. Mm-hmm. So you know, it achieved the goal, even if it you know they didn't have a lot to work with financially. Well, what's funny about that ending? Um, about well, that's not that's actually not the ending, but about that scene. I mean, in a in a lesser film, that actually probably would be the climax. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but um, what's interesting about the whole circle of protection sequence is that 
when they ran out of money and the budget sort of um, did fail them, it was mostly when the angel of death comes to visit. But it forced Davies to be far more cinematically creative because he didn't he wasn't able to show things that he wanted to show. And so I do kind of it almost in some ways feels a little bit like Roger Corman's The Mask of the Red Death at times where he's using color and he's using um, these really unique camera angles, which as an eight year old, I found I found truly terrifying <laughs> and then you watch it later as an adult you're like oh yeah you just ran out of money and so you had to do something weird <laughs> i guess well here's how but, it's, but yet it still works yeah. i i, I mean, didn't even realize that was a budget issue because oh, that, that scene yeah. totally works for me yeah. and i think yeah. it's one it's a super tension a scene filled with a lot of tension and here's i, I will say this if you're listening to this and i know there's people that listen to our podcast that sometimes don't know about some of the movies we're talking about or whatever hammer is um not high budget and, and it never was. And, and the, the thing, to, so understand that I, I, I think these are good fun movies to watch, particularly around, you know, this time of year, but do not go into these movies <laughs> expecting, you know, $200 million productions or anything close to that. But to me, that's part of their charm. Yeah. So if you allow yourself to be okay with some dodgy special effects, I think you will just kind of, you will, I think, appreciate these movies for what they are. I always say whenever I talk about a Hammer movie or, or, or put it on Letterboxd and my review or whatever, I always say it has good um, set designs and good production yeah. value. And you might scoff at the production value thing if your standard is, you know, uh, an MCU film or, or something. But no, I mean, I think for what they were working with and the time period they were made in, I think these are really good production values. Well, and I would go out and say that in many ways, a lot of times the production design is even better than modern, um, you know, studio um, IP filmmaking mm-hmm. because because of their lack of budget, they were forced to actually use practical locations and practical sets, and they had to bring all of this stuff in. And they would go, you know, they would go to somebody's house and find these great antique chairs or candelabras <laughs> or whatever, and just fill the set with them and make them look like they were these really big, expensive, cool things. And it was literally just like the desk that the um, production secretary had at their house, <laughs> yeah. you know. But it just it worked, and they had to be creative like that. So there's a tactile feel to everything where you actually – you really do feel like you could step into this movie and live in um, the house. Yes, yeah, exactly. So any, any final thoughts before we wrap it well, up? You know, so what I would say for people watching this movie, because um, it really is one of the first more highbrow – um, horror thrillers to sort of take on the notion of the occult mm. and really try to think to yourself and imagine this imagine films like Rosemary's Baby, um, The Exorcist or even Satanic Panic or episodes above the Vampire Slayer existing if this film had not come first you see influences, even though this movie sadly wasn't as successful as Hammer hoped and did not spawn the series that I really feel like it should have, um, especially here in the United States. It did reasonably well in England, but it didn't do it didn't do well at all here. Um, you can feel its influence throughout the next, you know, from basically the 1970s through today. You can feel filmmakers borrowing and lifting from this motion picture 
all the way up to today when it comes to films about the occult. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I was thinking about thinking about that actually when I was watching it. It's it's uh, yeah. I was thinking about there's elements of this that I see. Well, I see elements of this, like you said, Sarah, and a lot of things. But I was thinking about like 40 years later when like Sam Raimi did Drag Me to Hell. There's elements yes. of, of that and. And, you know, there's, you know, the nun, the nun series has <laughs> elements of this. It's, it's all over. <laughs> so, yeah. So at the end of the episode, we, we give a, a score. So anywhere from zero to 10, 10 being the best. Uh, Ashley, I'll have you go first. What would you give this out of 10? I have in my notes 7.8. 7.8. Okay. <laughs> I will give it an eight. Uh, Sarah, what would you give this out of 10? Well, I mean, I've never, I can't be that like. Seven point eight. How do you come up with a point eight? I, um, I get creative. You know, I think, I think, I think for the actual quality of the film, I think an eight is a good is a is a reasonable score. I agree, it is an eight. However, for me, because of my personal connection to it, the way that it makes me think of my mother, the influence that it had on me to become a film critic and do what I do going forward, it's a total ten. Just because I bring in that history that's attached to the film. Okay. So, yeah, we go with your personal score. So, our average then is an 8.6. I think that's a good score for this movie. Yeah. And <laughs> one thing at the end we'll say is it, it, the U.S. title of this was changed to The Devil's Bride. Oh, yes. Um, and that's actually what showed up on the, the Blu-ray that Ashley and I watched. And mm-hmm. I read that that was done because, uh, you know, United States. So yeah. <laughs> the executives at the time thought, like, the double rise out sounds like a Western. Yep. And they thought audiences mm-hmm. would get confused. So anyway. For, for people coming to this film, the Screen Factory Blu-ray is extraordinary. It's chock full of lots of fascinating information as to how this film was made. Plus, it has one of the great Christopher Lee audio commentaries of all time. Oh, we'll have to listen. Oh, to yeah, that. we'll have to listen to that. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. And folks listening, if you like what you heard from Sarah and, uh, you know, want to look up more of what they have to say, it's... Um, uh, Twitter, Sarah, you can find her at movie, at movie freak Sarah, S-A-R-A. And then also you share a lot of your uh, film thoughts on the website, moviefreak.com. So yeah. Thank you for joining us. Correct. And I'm also the lead film critic for the Seattle Gay News. Nice. That's awesome. Well, um, Sarah, thank you for joining us. Ashley. Thank you very much for listening. And Sarah, thank you for being here. Yeah. Thank you. It all was for my pleasure. Thank you so much. 